Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Halloween week, and we're wrapping it up with the last interview of the week with J.D. Walker, who has written The Witch's Guide to Wildcrafting by Llewellyn. I had a really great time talking to J.D., and she's such a wonderful guest and so engaging. I really could talk to her anytime and be happy to do so, and I think you're going to love this uh, interview. So we're going to go right on to it. This is the last episode of the week, of Halloween week, and again, this is J.D. Walker with The Witch's Guide to Wild Crafting, out now uh, from Llewellyn Publications. It's on Amazon and Barnes & Noble for publication right away. And on we go. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. Today, my interview is with J.D. Walker, who is the author of A Witch's Guide to Wildcraft by Llewellyn Press, coming out this year. J.D., thank you very much for appearing on my podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I want to begin by asking a little bit about yourself. Tell us about yourself and your background. Well, um, as far as my um, career or business type background, uh, I have... Um, I've been a landscaper. Uh, I did. Uh, I had my own company for a period of time. Um, I have been a reporter. I recently retired. Uh, my forte in uh, the newspaper business was business and politics, but I also, through that, uh, did my garden column. I did a, car- a garden column for almost 30 years for various publications, regional publications uh, around here, pri- uh, primarily newspapers. Um, my personal background, uh, I grew up uh, in North Carolina in a very rural part of North Carolina. So we were always very connected to gardening and, and being out in the woods, being close to nature, so to speak. Um, and I rely on that quite a lot. Uh, I know a lot of people uh, will tell you that in their background, in their family somewhere or other, uh, there was actually some witch or uh, wise man or something of that sort. Uh, certainly, I didn't have that kind of support, but I had uh, very open-minded uh, adults in my life. My mother and my grandmother uh, were aware of my interest in the occult, in the um, uh, pagan traditions, and they, they kept an eye on what I was reading, but uh, they never really said, oh, you can't do that, you're, you're going to hell or anything of that sort. They were very open-minded about it. So I had the luxury of pursuing that without any kind of intimidation uh, from the people that I was, uh, I was living with, uh, my family. I do come from a large family. Uh, there were nine of the children. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we did a lot of gardening uh, you had to do a lot of gardening in order to feed so many hungry little mouths. Oh, yeah. I know what that's like. <laughs> Are you from a large family? Well, I have one now. I have six kids. Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> I hope you've got them out in the garden right regular. Well, I always tell people I, I come, I had two brothers. And when you, my mother fed us, I don't think it was a matter of what she was cooking, but how fast she can get away from the table, get and, the table. and keep all her fingers. <laughs> I remember. I remember distinctly, I have five brothers and trying to feed them uh, was, was just a bear. We ate a lot. My mother would buy uh, potatoes by the 50 pound bag uh, oh, yeah. and, and flour by the 25 pound sack. I don't think you can find 25 pound sacks of flour anymore. <laughs> Not really. I mean, there's a few places, but you got to look for them. <laughs> yeah, I I. I really think it. you learn to cook and like uh, forage and garden when you have a large family. It becomes you important. Do. 
you do. So when I was reading your book, I was really, I really enjoyed um, the foreword by Sarah McDavid. Oh, I'll tell and, you. And uh, I really liked that she mentioned that you created the book because you didn't see anything like it that already existed, which I've heard from a lot of authors. That's the way they kind of had the impetus to write because mm -hmm. nobody else had done it. And I, and I was so struck by it because it's so true. I mean, I'm so sick of seeing books on plants and herbs that all mention European stuff that I'm never going to see. And it's like, oh, thanks. Thanks for that. <laughs> so, and so I wanted to say, I really appreciate you doing some about North American plants because I'm like, well, finally. So tell us about how you came to create this and what was the impetus for you to make this book? Well, uh, Sarah and I, uh, she's a dear friend. Uh, she owns a new age shop uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I would help her out there uh, quite a lot. And uh, not long after I got my first copy of Scott Cunningham's uh, Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs, I, I was leafing through it, realizing that I could source or grow probably 60% of the plants he talks about in there. Uh, and since both of us were kind of uh, on tight purse strings at the time, uh, we were looking at it and saying, you know, we need to come up with a book so that if somebody uh, wants to gather their own herbs, really get connected back to nature, uh, they would be able to do that. They would be able to identify them. Uh, they would be able to understand when and how to collect them and then how to preserve them. Uh, so we toyed around with it a little bit. Uh, we tried to come up with something that we might be able to self-publish. Uh, and, and it just never really worked out in a way that, that we would feel comfortable with. Uh, so then I had the opportunity to pitch the idea to Llewellyn. And, and thankfully, they were interested in it. So they were open to the idea of publishing it. Um, I wanted the book to be practical in nature because that's pretty much the way I approach life and magic and, and everything. Um, it does me no good, for instance, uh, to talk about plants that you might find in Europe. If you can't go out the door and pick them after I've spent the time telling you how to gather plants, how to preserve plants, um, and, and you go out your front door and you can't find a frankincense tree, you right. know, what are you gonna do? Right. Um, so, um, that was the, the major emphasis. The secondary thought, or, or maybe I could say a co-thought there, was that I truly believe that you should live your magic. Uh, right. You should see yourself in a magical environment. I've been really struck by the, some of the books and movies that have come out in the fantasy uh, uh, realm here in the last several years that treat magic as an everyday thing. Uh, so right. you have, you're living next door to a witch or to some magical entity, um, uh, vampires or something of that sort. Uh, and it's not unusual. There's a way that they blend into the community. Uh, so I wanted people to get used to that idea that you do live in a magical environment. If you yeah. simply see it, acknowledge it and participate in it. Right. I like that a lot. Now you describe yourself in the book as a wild crafting witch. For our listeners that may not be familiar with the term, how can you describe the practice and define it? Well, wild crafting simply means instead of going to a cultivated patch of land, my, it might be a, a raised garden that you have, or if you're fortunate enough to have the space that you could actually 
uh, grow your own tomatoes or corn or, or whatever you happen to be interested in, uh, but you've cultivated. Uh, wildcraft means you're taking advantage of what comes up around you, uh, whether that happens to be um, honeysuckle or pokeweed or the, um, the boxwoods that are growing outside your door. We, we don't normally think of that in terms of wildcrafting, uh, but even landscape plants can be um, considered wildcrafted if you go out there to harvest them. They weren't planted for the purpose of magic. They were planted because they were pretty in the landscape or, or they served some design function, uh, but you're going to repurpose them and you yeah. are going to look at them as a magical resource that you can use. So you are wildcrafting them. Uh, one of the early titles for the book uh, was Roadside Magic uh, because Again, living in North Carolina and this part of North Carolina, I have access to very urban areas, uh, but you see a lot of plants growing on the side of the road that aren't in your landscape and they're perfectly usable. Uh, don't eat them or smoke them or drink right. them, but yeah. you have no idea what could have been sprayed on them. Uh, right. But they're certainly, once they've been cleaned, they've, they're perfectly good for use in, in magical work and spiritual work. Um, so that, that was the idea. Anything that um, is not typically cultivated, you could consider wildcraft. Now, people hear the term herb or herbal all the time, or for our uh, friends in Europe, herb or herbal. herbal. <laughs> you see it everywhere. <laughs> and it's, it's branded on things in the store all the time. Do most Americans know what the term means? How do you define the term? Well, they, a lot of folks don't know. As a matter of fact, that was a discussion that we had uh, with some of the editors for the book. Uh, what exactly do we mean by herbal? And I, I go to some pains to try to explain that. Uh, on a very surface level, an herb is the aerial portion of the plant, usually the leaf, possibly the flower uh, and or the stem. Uh, and a spice is the um, seed or the bark or sometimes in rare occasions, the root like in ginger. Uh, so a, um, a spice is kind of the tough chewy part uh, and an herb is the tender aerial part. Well, that mm -hmm. works fine if you're talking about culinary uh, herbs, but if you are talking about herbs in the sense of magic, we, we don't really make a distinction between bark and leaf and flower and root when we say herb, we mean all parts of the plant. Uh, we tend to borrow from the um, homeopathic, um, the uh, natural medicines uh, uh, community, because when they talk about herbs, they, they are all inclusive. It, it's, it's the roots, it, it's the bark, it's whatever you happen to use. Uh, and I think in an example I use in the book is that um, most people would not consider acorns uh, an herb but there are magical uses for acorns uh, in your work, in your spiritual work, in your magical work. Uh, and if you have them sitting on the jar, we would point to that shelf of things on the, the um, uh, those jars of shelf, darn, I can't talk now, uh, those um, jars on the shelf as all being herbs, we wouldn't make a distinction between the two. So when I talk about them in the book, if I say herbs, that, that's everything. That's all parts of the usable plant material. All right. So I wanted to ask you, and you, you touched on this earlier. 
I always see, and this drives me insane, but I see in movies and in TV, the uh, proverbial witch or sorcerer or practitioner just throwing uh, herbs in a pot or plants in a pot and stirring it with no intent. And it just seems to be kind of mindless, this depiction. What is your take on this when you watch a movie or a CB TV show? And what's the, what's the difference between the reality of real life practice? It's interesting to me because again, love those kinds of movies, uh, particularly the animated ones. Yeah. Uh, truly enjoy watching them. And I have never in, in my life, as far back as I can remember, ever believed that just because you, you threw two or three things into a pot that poof, a dragon appeared. Right. Uh, you know, it never occurred to me to think that or that, <laughs> that you truly stirred up a potion and drank it and bam, you turned into a wolf. Yeah. Uh, it just, it never occurred to me. However, uh, as I mentioned, I do help uh, my friend out at her shop from time to time. And we still get people who come in and say, all right, tell me what herbs I can mix so that I can turn into a wolf tonight. <laughs> and you go, well, honey, it ain't gonna work that way. Uh, or, you know, I need to be invisible. Well, invisible in magic means you're not noticed. It doesn't mean people can't see you in the, the literal mundane sense. You're still going to be there. Yeah. But it, there are certain herbs and spells and things that you can do that make you less noticeable, therefore invisible. So I don't have a problem with those things because people are going to be gullible in that sense. And there's not much we can do about that. I do have a problem when I see um, celebrities, whether they're... Um, musical or film or, or internet celebrities trading on it uh, in order to incite, um, yeah. whether they're inciting shock or they're um, trying to take a jab just to see what kind of reaction they can get. Um, we had the um, a young rapper who did something recently and, and I won't get into his name, um, but um, the impetus, yeah, the impetus was he, he was going to hell and then he was the ruler of hell. Um, and that's insightful, um, not insight, uh, but um, it's provocative uh, and it causes pain in the community. And, and I really wish they wouldn't do that. I wish they would find other ways uh, to gin up enthusiasm for whatever it is they're promoting. Uh, that part disappoints me. Uh, if you're gullible enough to believe that you can sprinkle something on a broom, and fly from here to the state capitol. Well, <laughs> there's not much I can do for you, but that's just going to happen. Yeah, I often see cauldrons for sale, and I think like if you have a cauldron at home, it's confusing for people that aren't because they think you're literally going to be brewing it up on the hearth. With, like <laughs> you'll be putting random plants in it, and it's like it's. I have to say, no, it's it's nice. It's part of our heritage, but it's not. I'm not gonna, I live in a condo. I'm not gonna use it. You know, I'm not, where, where am I gonna use that, you know? So I, exactly. I think this is where you disconnect, you know? The, well, the, the tools that we use, as long as we see them as something that sets the mood um, and not magic in and of itself. Um, again, that is a perception people have. There is, in my opinion, magic in plants. There's a spiritual element to plants that help us achieve our goal. Uh, but it, they're not 
like batteries that you plug into something and, and make this thing happen just because you plug the battery in. You have to put your energy into it yourself. You have to direct the inherent energy or magic in the plant. If you are just throwing things in a pot, you might as well be cooking. You know, it might right, be tasty right. when you get done, but it's not going to do you very much good magically. Right. So we have many modern works that describe the effects of plants, mostly European, written centuries ago. I, I can think of several, but I think we all know the ones we're talking about, like mm -hmm. Culpeper's Herbal, etc. Um, oh, yes. mm -hmm. How did you bridge the gap from the old works, all the Latin names and all that stuff, to, to your, your modern work? Well, this is something that, again, gets back to the practicality of it. Uh, a lot of the plants that we are familiar with here were imported here. Uh, they, they, maybe they came purposefully, uh, like Plankton. Uh, Plankton has a name among Native Americans, I believe, uh, of white man's foot, because everywhere he went, he had it. And it wasn't an accident. They, they brought it on purpose. It was a pot herb. Uh, you could eat it. You could use the seeds from it. Uh, so they brought it intentionally. Now it fell out of favor and, and we don't use it as a food source anymore. We could, uh, and we can definitely use it as a medicinal source. Um, but a lot of the plants that we have to work with were either brought here intentionally or unintentionally uh, from the European continent, uh, from the Asian continent, uh, or they have a similar cousin over in Europe. Uh, so what I have trying to do is help people understand uh, what these plants are. And so you pick up a book um, and uh, well, you can pick up Agrippa's a book, for instance, and he speaks about uh, violets. Uh, is that the same plant that he would have been familiar with? Well, no, it's not because yeah. they didn't have the American violet, the viola that we have here, they didn't have that in Europe. Now, in this case, you can use either one of them, the one if you happen to have your hands on an odorata, viola odorata, um, you can use that the same way you can use viola canadese over here. Uh, but in other cases, it's not the same plant. Um, for instance, um, a lot of people are familiar with the plant St. John's wort. Uh, right. And we, we know that's a hypericum. You should know that that's a hypericum. So you pick up uh, a magic book, and, and particularly if it has an English influence of any sort, uh, they may say to you to use this St. John's wort uh, for some sort of midsummer spell. And you immediately think hypericum. He's not talking, that person's not talking about how pericum in all likelihood, they're talking about mugwort. And mugwort had in old England, uh, the name St. John's wort because it happened to, to come up around midsummer. So around um, St. John's day, which I think is uh, June 25th, is very close to the summer solstice. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested in this because in my landscaping experience, people would ask for certain plants. They would say one thing, they would mean something else. Right. Um, for instance, if I asked, if somebody would say to me that uh, they wanted to plant, um, well, one from uh, my childhood is a sweet militia 
Bush. Yeah. What in the world is sweet militia? Uh, it took me years to figure out that when my grandmother was saying sweet militia, she meant sweet, uh, the, the honeysuckle shrub. Uh, shrub. Um, it's a uh, Lonicera uh, Fragmistia, I believe it is. Um, you don't want, if I say plant honeysuckle, you don't want me out there planting Japanese honeysuckle. Right. <laughs> because right. it's going to run all over your house. But now technically, you can use that uh, honeysuckle bush, the flowers and things from the honeysuckle bush. You've got the patience to gather those things because the little flowers on them are about this big, uh-huh, <laughs> the size yeah. of a bee. <laughs> right. You can gather those and, and have that source available in January, February in my area, as opposed to waiting until May or June to get the uh, the vining honeysuckle uh, that most of us are familiar with from the yard. So there are two, uh, two reasons here. I have a fascination from a landscaping standpoint of making sure that the plant I'm talking about and the plant I have in my mind are the same thing uh, or the plant that I'm telling someone, this is how you grow it. Or this is how you care for it. Um, and if I happen to be saying you, Y-E-W, uh, that I'm talking about the U, the taxis plant, as opposed to a plant out there that's called a false U, a pseudo U. Um, if you've got one, you treat it one way. If you've got the other, you treat it a different way. And you certainly do not use the false U and any kind of magic you would use the taxis, the, the proper U. Uh, so you have to be familiar with what these plants are in order to know how to use them or if you're going to grow them, how to grow them in your landscape. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When I am... in the wild, if I take any plants in the wild, I always do a little thing where I, I ask permission. And if it's given, I, I say, thank you. And sometimes I'll, I'll do a little offering uh, to say thanks. Likewise, when I take things in the garden, I always like to say thank you for what's given and uh, you know treat, treat the plants with respect. In your practice, what do you do when you gather items in the, in the wild or in your garden? Uh, we talk about this uh... Quite a bit in the book. Uh, it's going to have a whole section uh, devoted to it because people, the first time you do it, uh, it may feel a little bit uncomfortable, but you do need to communicate, in my opinion, you need to communicate with the plant. First of all, it establishes the, uh, the connection between you and the plant. Uh, I've always heard, and I hope it's true, that with uh, some folks, when they use the, the term namaste, the, the meaning of that is the spirit in me recognizes the spirit in you. That is what namaste is supposed to mean according to what I've uh, uh, read and learned. Uh, When you speak to the plant as you gather it, in my opinion, you're doing the same thing. We're all part of this community. We're all magical in our own particular way. I recognize that in this plant material in front of me and I'm sure the plant recognizes that energy in me as well. 
so I, I do talk to the plants. Uh, and I do, in the book, explain how to gather from that plant so that you don't hurt it. And, and it can be a little bit difficult sometimes talking to um, folks about hurting a, a plant. So, well, won't it just overgrow whatever damage you do to it, whether you pull it off or, or take it, cut it in the wrong place or whatever. There's a chance that it will. Uh, plants are very resilient in that way. Uh, but there's also a chance that you open it up to disease and insects. And that's very disrespectful. If you're going to live magically, you want to be very respectful of the plants that are providing you with a resource. So when you approach the plants, when I approach the plant, I generally do talk to them and say, hey, baby, how are you doing? I need a little bit of uh, help here with this spell that I'm trying to do. Uh, I'm, I'm doing something for myself or I'm doing something for a friend. So I'm just going to take a little bit of you uh, for my purposes here, if that's okay. Uh, if, I have, if it's something that I'm cultivating in the yard, I am regularly watering it as it needs it, feeding it, checking on it from time to time to make sure it doesn't have bugs or, or diseases or problems uh, with the plant. So I'm paying the plant back in that sense. If I am going out into the woods where this isn't something that I regularly maintain. Again, you address the plant, um, explain why you are taking uh, a part of the colony. Uh, and then, as you say, leave an offering. Uh, something I like to do at certain times of the year, if the plant has uh, set seed, is to help distribute some of the seeds that it's set. I'll oh, that's take brilliant. Scatter those around. Uh, just help them out a little bit. It's not they need my help, but that's one way to honor them and say, let me help you with your work a little bit. I'm going to scatter your seeds around some. Um, and then again, leave something if, if you don't have that. Um, again, I have been out and seen plants that I was going for that plant to get a leaf or maybe a flower or seed pot or something from it and seen that the plant has been damaged somewhere. Maybe an animal went careening through there or maybe a branch dropped overhead. Uh, and I generally have my pruners with me whenever I'm doing this. So I'll go ahead and prune it properly so it can seal the damage off and continue to be a healthy plant. Um, as I explained in the book, in one sense, this is being very practical. Uh, you want this plant to survive, to be a resource for you. So if you treat it well and you, you harvest from it responsibly, if you help it out in this growing environment, it will be there for you the next time you come back. But more importantly, you are demonstrating that you recognize you are part of the community. The community helps and supports itself by helping and supporting each other. And you reinforce your spirituality, in my opinion when you do that. Well, jumping off of that, um, talking about reinforcing spirituality, how do you believe that wild crafting can help witches or magic practitioners get more connected with nature? Yeah, I, I really, I can't begin to imagine how it could not. Um, I talk, um, oh, I think it was Actually, I think it's in the date book. I, when I write uh, for Llewellyn, I have written for quite a number of their books. Um, I apologize for the glare, but uh, I have some entries, for instance, here in the uh, uh, Witches Date Book for 2022. Oh, and, nice. Uh, particularly in, uh, in May, I talk about how to connect with the energy of your plants, sitting there and meditating with the plants to begin to feel it, 
Um, in the book, I mentioned uh, being down in South Carolina and not even really thinking about it. I was on vacation. I was listening to some old storyteller at, at some wayside stop talk about some legend or, or something locally. And I reached out to, to put my hand against the tree, just bracing myself. And I could feel the vibration. You could feel the energy. This was many years ago before I was very active in uh, my paganism. Um, and my first thought was, well, that must be vibrations I'm feeling from the road. You know, a lot of traffic going by. Maybe that's what's causing the vibration. And I looked around and realized that there was no traffic to be feeling that kind of vibration in the plant. That was the energy of this beautiful, stately old oak that was just monstrously huge, wonderful branches reaching out all over the place. And of course, with that classic Spanish moths hanging off of it, it's just oh, so nice. positive. Oh, it was wonderful. Uh, but when you are going out and respectfully interacting with nature, whether you're gathering from nature, maybe you're just going out and a particular plant happens to be in bloom and you're going to linger there for a while. You can sit and meditate with that plant, mentally reach out to that plant, maybe even touch that plant to feel that energy, connect with it, and, and let the energies flow through you back and forth. Just, just be, just be. It, it can be wonderfully uh, stress relieving. Um, I did a, a story for a different publication several years ago um, about something called forest bathing. Have you heard the term? Yeah. In fact, it's funny that you mentioned that because my wife has been has been reading a lot about it recently and been talking mm -hmm. to me about how the Japanese do this. And I find it the idea of it very fascinating. It, it's wonderful, but it's that whole notion of going out in nature and just being. And, yeah. and you you turn off the telephone or the cell phone. Uh, you you just you step away in a safe environment. Obviously, we don't you wander around in the woods and getting carried off by somebody, but uh, you you simply go there and you be and you immerse yourself in the nature. You smell it, you hear it, you see it in detail. The wonderful patterns and forget about anything and everything else that is going on in your life. You'll get back to that you've got to go back into the mundane world we live in the mundane world we can't live in the spiritual world until we pass on uh, but you can at least experience it and take advantage of that and and let the energy flow through you reduce that stress reconnect you with the divine however you see the divine and then just be and after a while you gather yourself up and you go back and hopefully your problems aren't quite as overwhelming as they were before. Uh, things aren't so insurmountable. There's more joy in your relationships. I mean, I'm not suggesting that spending five minutes out in the woods is gonna fix all of the problems in your life, uh, but it can help you really deal with these things much better if you will go back and reconnect spiritually. And for pagans, that can help you reinforce your magic. You tap into that when you do this regularly, it becomes a muscle reflex almost so that when you do do your spiritual meditations or honorings, when you do magic, you just automatically drop into that mode where you're connecting with that universal spiritual energy to help you with whatever your working happens to be at that time. 
In your book, you had a portion where you mentioned fairy houses and talking about the importance of that. Now, I've seen this before in other books, but it was always kind of out of context. It was like an aside or something, but it really seemed more poignant in your work because you talked about it in direct context. Can you talk to the people about who never heard of this before? Because as a gardener, this is something I'm very excited to, to maybe even try myself and work with. Can you tell people what fairy houses are? Certainly. Um, fairies are, they're not elementals. There is a difference between a fairy and an element or an elemental rather, uh, but they are little entities. Uh, some of them are pleasant. Uh, some of them are not. Yeah. Uh, but the, obviously, <laughs> I'm glad you recognize that. Again, speaking about the Disney type of, of magic, yeah. we, people tend to see, oh, these pretty little floating little Tinkerbell things. And it's, well, a lot of them are. <laughs> Many of them are not. Uh, and the other thing that people don't understand is fairies don't give a damn about us. You yep. know, you yep. can set up a relationship with a, a, a fairy, but it, they are air energies so uh, for the most part they're air energy there's some water energies and earth energies too but they're uh, primarily air and and they are ephemeral <laughs> they don't really give a damn about you um but that doesn't mean that you can't honor them uh so you do that by setting up a place where they're welcome to come and you do the things for them that fairies like they like a little secluded they like it cool they like green things. They like airy things. That's why uh, ferns and fairies belong. If you want to please fairies, learn how to grow some ferns. If you can't grow them out in your landscape, you can certainly have them in your house. You can have a little fairy house uh, in a dish type garden setting uh, in your house. You have a little harder time attracting fairies in the house, but you can do it. Um, you set this thing up. And it doesn't have to be something that you bought from the store. In the book, I talk about taking just a, um, a terracotta pot yeah. uh, and then you decorate it with the mosses and with um, acorn caps and pretty stones, uh, the nice shiny ones of anything that will be more glittery. Uh, fairies seem to really be drawn to glittery things. You can use some man-made things. One of the cutest things that uh, I saw, and this is, a, if I'm not mistaken, this is Victorian, um, was the recommendation that you could leave them the foil candy caps. Uh, you know, we used to get uh, candies in pretty little foil cups. Yeah. And uh, they shine, they sparkle. So that out there, a glass, uh, opalescent glass, is a very good thing to have. And then from time to time, leave a little milk and, and honey out there for the fairies. And those are ways that you appease that fairy energy. They might be willing to work with you with some of your magical work, may not, but at least you have appeased them. Uh, I had a, an interesting experience one time. I don't usually work with fairy energy, although uh, I do try to recognize it when I come across it. Uh, and I stepped off uh, in the dark on my back porch at one time and looked over in the woods. And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the Mary, Mary Melody uh, Looney Tunes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big fan. And you remember a motif that they would frequently use would be there would be this black background and then all of a sudden eyeballs. You just yep. saw blinking eyes. I stepped out on the porch again, had nothing on my mind other than putting something in the recycling bin outside, looked over to my right in the woods and saw that, literally saw the eyes looking back at me and, and not just one or two, but 
several of them. And I remember looking at it, going, okay, well, this is interesting. <laughs> and stepping back into the house for a few minutes, I thought, well, step back out on the porch, didn't see it. So that was one of those passing things. You never, in my experience, you never know when you're going to encounter fairy energy, but just be respectful of it. Thank you very much for stopping by and, and keep on getting up. I wanted to also ask you, I was really impressed by your portion about poppets and how they're used. And I feel also this is something that's very mistreated in books often. You'll hear it talked about and they don't often really explain how to do it. Can you just um, talk a bit about poppets as well? Uh, poppets, um, are you familiar with the, the term egregore? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, for your listeners, if they're not familiar with it, uh, you can create a thought form uh, by building energy and sending it into this thought form. It's called an egregore, and the egregore can, can do some things for you. And doing a poppet is similar to that. You are creating... Uh, a representation of a person. Uh, I hope you don't do this for a particular person unless you are doing healing type magic. Right. Uh, you can use it if people are most familiar with poppets when it comes to baneful magic um, or, or harmful things, but they're very good to use as a representation uh, for good stuff. We talk in the book about how to do a, a dream poppet uh, for your child. If your child has, has experienced some uh, discomfort from bad dreams and things. So you create a protective poppet for that child to hold uh, and feel safer when he or she goes to bed at night. Um, when you create this, and we talk about how to actually form the, the uh, poppet out of yarn in this case, um, you should always have your intent in mind. I am creating this with loving energy, protective energy as you create the heads the arms, the body, and the legs. Uh, you should insert proper protective herbs. Uh, I find that uh, bits of mistletoe are very protective. You can use, uh, for instance, uh, rose quartz and those sorts of things, different things that mean protection. Uh, lavender certainly is a very good thing uh, to use, particularly for children. You can put that in a little sachet, and as you form the head, that packing becomes the head part of the poppet when you make this yarn poppet. Um, and then you do your ceremony where you see this poppet that you've created as a protective energy. It's a representation in the mundane world of the egregore, the thought form that you are making in the magical world and the spiritual realm. Uh, and then from time to time, you can dress it again with lavender. Vanilla is a good soothing relaxing scent for children as well right. um rose if they if they like a full fragrance uh and from time to time you're charging it so that the child can see that as a representation of your loving protective energy to keep him or her safe from whatever the the bad things that they may feel they're experiencing i know that uh, children are, are considered to be uh more sensitive to the spiritual world but sometimes they simply are experiencing um, a normal reaction to something stressful in their day they don't really they're not really being attacked by spirits i have parents who come in sometimes and they are deeply concerned that spirits are attacking their child and what can i do about it um, and we give them some help to to help do some sorts of things to 
feel, uh, help them feel safer and help the child feel safer. And I'm happy to say that most of the time the child isn't being literally attacked by anything bad from the spiritual realm. Uh, but having that puppet there, using the right kinds of herbs, investing it with your protective energy, your love and your compassion for that child will make the child feel safer. So if there happens to be some negative energy floating around, this is this will be protective for it. I'm not saying that that doesn't do you any good. It's all in the child's head. Uh, if there's negative energy out there, this will help to surround him or her with a positive protective energy and help that child make it through. And then you take that knowledge and say, oh, I want to do one to uh, help my, uh, my friend who is uh, going through a tough time uh, in a hospital uh, or with a chronic condition that they might happen to have, or maybe uh, you have a sense of insecurity. You can do the same thing for yourself and you are creating a mundane representation of this thing that you're creating in the spiritual realm that will give you that protection, that will help you with the healing energy. Uh, those are the things we most often do puppets for. I don't talk a whole lot about baneful magic because I don't want to encourage that. There's a lot of negativity in the world, uh, but people use puppets for negative purposes all the time. And, and technically, if you want to get right down to it, you, you go through the same process if you are um, going that way. The, the only time I would recommend doing that is from a protective sense. You can create right. a protective egregore uh, right. to help keep you safe. I always tell people that whatever you do on the spiritual realm, uh, follow it up with what you need to do in the mundane world. Right. Uh, if you need protection, and again, this is something that we have uh, folks at, at my friend's shop come in on a sadly regular basis. I need protection from malicious slander. I need protection from an aggressive companion. Uh, then you need to take the steps in the mundane world, right. don't just burn the candles and the incense. That's well and good. But if you're not doing something in the mundane world, it's going to be harder for the magic to manifest uh, to manifest in the in the mundane world. If you're not doing what you need to do, cut off contacts with that aggressive person, uh, make better associations with people who are not going to slander you, who are not going to uh, involve you in bad gossip, that sort of thing. Do what you need to do in the mundane world, but by all means, uh, follow that up with something, again, a puppet in that case, um, in the spiritual world as well. Now, I always sound greedy asking this next question, but I really loved your book. So I want to ask, are you are you working on anything <laughs> else right now? Aren't you sweet? Thank you so much. <laughs> well, obviously, as I said, um, I've got things um, in this uh, the next issues of Llewellyn's Magical Almanac, Witch's Date Book, and Herbal Almanac. Uh, for those of who, you who are interested and always wanted to grow hydrangeas, I've got a, uh, what I hope is a very helpful article in the uh, uh, 2022 Herbal Almanac on how to grow various and sundry hydrangeas. Um, I am currently working on um, some things for the uh, 2023 Magical and Herbal Almanacs, a couple of short articles for those. Uh, and I'm also doing rewrites on a book, um, uh, my next book, uh, hopefully with Llewellyn, which is uh, kind of picks up with the uh, uh, Witch's Guide to Wildcraft. And this one I talk about 
three or four trees uh, in this particular book. Um, oaks, pines, willows, sweet gums. Um, but the next one uh, deals more specifically with trees. Um, in particular, I've, I've become fascinated with the notion of the world tree yes. and how that is used. You see people walking around all the time with book bags and they've got the world tree on there. Uh, the Celtic knot tree is a very popular emblem in the pagan community. But yeah. if you ask somebody, what does that mean? What is that for? A lot of times the only thing that they can relate it to is environmentalism, which is great. That's wonderful. Uh, the world tree is actually a representation of the interconnection between the spiritual realm, the upper, what some folks would call the heavenly part, the mundane world, and then the underworld. Uh, and in different cultures, it has been used to uh, in different ways to access those realms. Sometimes anyone can do it. Uh, sometimes any tree will do. Uh, sometimes it has to be a specific tree and a specific person who is trained to use that structure to go and find answers for you or find solutions for you. Um, so uh, right now I'm doing the rewrites for that. I hope that it will be available uh, for being published next year. Uh, we'll see. Depends on whether I get all the rewrites done on it. Well, I'm very excited to see that. That sounds really wonderful. Thank you. That was my conversation with the wonderful J.D. Walker. I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to her. Unfortunately, it was cut off right at the very end there, but the rest of it's intact. So that is the end of Halloween week. I hope you enjoyed all our guests this week that we've had, um, including the encore presentations. Next week, we're going to start a brand new season, season number four. And we're going to have some new guests on. On Monday, we're going to have Katie Quinn, who has written the famous and well-received book, Cheese, Wine, and Bread, Discovering the Magic of Fermentation. Now, she is an author and as well as a vlogger, and you may have seen her YouTube videos. So tune in on Monday for Katie Quinn. And then on Friday next week is going to be Cal Peternell in his uh, well-received book, Burnt Toast and Other Disasters, is a uh, bestseller. Is He'll be out on Friday. He was the uh, head chef for Chez Penny run by Alice Waters in Berkeley for over 20 years. And um, I think you're going to enjoy hearing my conversation with him as well. So tune in next week for two exciting guests. I hope you all have a happy Halloween and as well, happy cooking.